This is the Author Archive. I'm David Freeman. Once again, man's inhumanity to man is in the news. This is a conversation I recorded with Sir Martin Gilbert in 2000. Sir Martin is known for his biography of Churchill, but also his writing about the Holocaust. In 2000, there was a book called Never Again published, A History of the Holocaust. I remember reading it, and it's a tough read. And I wondered, as the writer, the author, if Sir Martin ever became inured to it. I don't think anybody who writes about it really becomes inured. And one thing I tried to do was not to have what you could call horrible or, or shocking photographs. And yet still, as you say, the story is so shocking, it doesn't need horrible no. photographs to make its impact. I also wanted to put it in the sort of or the wider context of Jewish life before the war and also of the renewal of Jewish life afterwards. But still the central core remains terrifying and when I'm writing about it I find sometimes after two or three hours work I just have to stop. And that central time, the Holocaust, just four years. Just four years. And what I when I had to stop and walk around is the thought that people who were alive at the same time, same era as us put children into gas chambers and it is beyond belief isn't it? It is beyond belief and also when you think that these people before 1933 before Hitler came to power were relatively ordinary people they were policemen they were perhaps petty criminals but petty criminals don't murder children uh, they were people who had cranky ideas, but cranky ideas of themselves don't lead to mass murder. So I think this is really so hard to understand. I mean, this question why, which every historian, every reader will ask, is somehow unanswerable. I mean, I've been <laughs> writing and researching on this subject now for more than 35 years, and I, I can't answer the question. But even the people who are there at Auschwitz as a story, because what, what comes out of this is the power of the anecdote. Um, right. There's a man who's arrived, presumably on his way to the gas chamber, but he doesn't know that, and he's saying, where's my family? They said the family would all be together. Right. They said we'd be together. And right. someone pointed to the smoke and said, right. that's your family. And even then, he can't take it in. Yeah. You can't believe yeah. that your fellow human beings yeah. can behave like that. And I think there's one sense in which when you read these stories, and I tried to tell, make it more individual stories rather than mm. statistics, but when you're reading it, you sometimes think, well, wait a minute, perhaps this is all some sort of nightmare, and I'll wake up, <laughs> either writer, either reader will wake up, and it, it won't have happened. The, the thing which really make, gives, me night, gives me nightmares is I'm writing about people here, kids, young kids, who were born in the same year that I was born and I've now had since 1945, almost half a century, well actually more than half a century of life, creativity, enjoyment, and there they were, the kids of my age, simply destroyed for, for no reason. I mean, there was no way in which effectively the Jews could be eliminated. No people can be eliminated in their entirety. It, it was an exercise from the start in grotesque futility. And you, you do explain, I hadn't known 
that um, just a few days after Hitler had got himself elected to power, there was, um, there was a harbinger, there was a day of action against right. Jews, which was the first, I suppose, the first real rustle of what, right. what could be expected. Right. What happened on that day? Well, it, it's curious. What Hitler intended, what the Nazis intended, was to say, look, we're going to have a permanent boycott against Jews. Don't go into Jewish shops. Right? Don't, don't have anything to do with Jewish shops. When this was announced, there was so much protest in the United States and in Britain that this was not a civilized way to behave. You'd, you don't boycott the shops of a, of a racial group or religious group or of a certain type of people. But the Germans themselves had to reduce the boycott to a one-day boycott. So already it was an example of world pressure being effective. The one-day boycott went ahead and actually was, in a sense, more powerful in the impact it made than if it had gone on and on. Suddenly for one day you couldn't go to Jewish shops. One of the things which really moved me was that there were many individual Germans, the decent people, who said this is absurd. Of course it's absurd. Imagine it in our own communities today. Boycott, I don't know, Bangladeshi shops. It is madness. Many ordinary Germans said, I'm deliberately going to go into these shops. You know, there are two Nazi thugs standing outside, but I'm a German citizen, nothing will happen to me. And indeed, nothing did happen to them, and they went in. So one of the great questions that really overshadows the Holocaust is if ordinary decent people had from that moment protested, taken courageous but decisive action against each phase of the bringing in of tyranny and then murder, who knows, this might not have got underway. But somehow the power of Nazis and its propaganda, and of course its Gestapo, its tyrannical power, were overwhelming. But there's also, there's a line in Captain Corelli's Mandolin, um, the film where a German officer says, I've grown up since the last war, the, the, the Great War, knowing nothing but defeat um, in hardship. And there's that kind of feeling of if someone's to blame for the badness of how I am. So how much of it grew on fertile soil of disaffection? I think less than people really produce. And in a way that that was wrong, that, that German soldier. He may have been taught that at school. But for example, reparations, the Allied imposition on the defeated Germans that they had to pay for the damage done in the war, those had virtually, they had actually completely come to an end. Six months before Hitler came to power, the victorious Allies of the First World War abolished reparations. Uh, German industry was recovering. Uh, Germany, you know, was, it had problems, it had unemployment, but even when Hitler came to power, his vote was declining. The, the situation wasn't as bad as all that. And how do you make the leap between feeling we're defeated, we're humiliated, we want to be a powerful nation again, and murdering even one person? The, I hadn't, I suppose, thought of it, but there's the building of the crematorium. Right. Um, you know, architects and builders right. are in there right. building these things. There's the scaffolding. Um, presumably it's all documented. Right. Um, were they told what they were doing? Yes, the, the architects and designers were given very careful briefs. And the, uh, in fact, the firm that made the gas chamber uh, submitted, I mean, it was a competitive uh, tender. tender. 
and uh, they not only submitted it and won it, but after the war, they renewed their patent. After Germany had defeated and Nazism was over, they renewed their patent. After all, it was an efficient uh, method. And uh, so these things, they were known. At the same time, and I think it's a very difficult balance, and I've tried to really bring it out in the book, a lot of things were kept secret. When mass murder in the streets of the cities of Russia created revulsions among ordinary German soldiers, among German businessmen who happened to be in those towns, the decision was made to, to, to do the killing in remote hidden areas, these so-called death camps, uh, which people didn't see. Trains went from Paris to what was called the unknown destination or somewhere in the east. So it wasn't broadcast. It wasn't something which was made a lot of. And Hitler himself monitored the whole thing to make sure that, you know, in a way, what he called night and fog, Nacht und Nebel, secrecy and, you know, doubt was everywhere. People say, well, the Jews are going off. They say they're being murdered. Yet somehow nobody said it officially. They were being resettled, all these sort of euphemistic words. And, and, and the camera, uh, on, the, on the photographs, lots of, lots of cameras there, lots of people recording right. what was happening. Um, and when they're walking onto the trains, carrying just, they're only allowed to take what they can carry. Right. Um, but instead of kind of fighting and um, running away and rebelling, there's a look of just um, abject sort of acceptance, everyone just in a line, just right. accepting it. Now, is that because they, they had no idea what was happening, or was it because they'd been systematically beaten down to such an extent that the fight was squeezed out of them? Well, I think it was a combination. First of all, they did not know they were going to be murdered. They thought they were being yet again sent somewhere else. These were people who'd often been moved from the towns where they lived all their lives to a ghetto, and then from the ghetto, once again, they were being moved. Um, to harvesting in the east, to working on some uh, building projects in the war zones. So there was this dejection, the feeling not again, we're moving yet again. And I give some examples of postcards which people threw from these trains, saying, I'm not sure where we're going, but I'll write <laughs> after we've arrived. Well, of course, when they arrived, they were murdered. The other thing is that, and I don't know if I was criticized, one of the criticisms of the book by one of the distinguished professors here in Britain was that I put in too much about Jewish resistance and defiance and acts of defiance. But it seemed to me this was a reality of the Holocaust, that the moment people realized what was happening, then although they were weakened, although they'd had to live for two or three years in ghettos with, with starvation rations, although they had no weapons and the Germans had their guns and machine guns and when they needed it, tanks and aircraft, Still, this instinct to say, no, we'll, we'll break out, we'll try, was always there. And I tell the story in the book of, of even in Auschwitz itself, these desperately emaciated and beaten slave laborers finally managed to blow up two of the crematoria. It's an extraordinary story. But of course, they were all then rounded up and killed because they had no means of defending themselves. You can't defend yourself with fists however strong, against a machine gun. It's the little details. The guys coming off the train, people, families, tie your shoes together and put them on, um, on coat hangers because, and remember the number, because we'll strip off now and we'll go after the shower, you can come back and get And we don't want the shoes to be, you know, we don't want you not to be able to find your shoes or 
the shoes will be separated. Well, that's so plausible. How can you imagine something terrible is going to happen to you if the whole emphasis is, you know, look after your shoes? Then there's a chapter, Canada, is it in Auschwitz? Canada, right. Now, right. What, what is meant by Canada? Well, Canada, to people in, in Europe, under, particularly under Nazi rule and this terrible, frightening tyranny, Canada was somehow, in the mind, a land of freedom and a land of prosperity. Uh, many Jews before the war had aspired to emigrate there. Uh, and unfortunately, Canada had imposed very strict immigration restrictions. But the image of Canada was wealth. Wealth. And then when these hundreds of thousands of Jews, probably more than a million in the end, were brought into Auschwitz, and everything was taken off them, their clothes, their possessions, the little, as you say, the bundle they were allowed to bring, which might have, you know, the few special possessions that every people have. But everybody has a toothbrush, everybody has a comb, everybody has, or many people have glasses. A million times, everybody is wearing something, a million shirts, a million pairs of pants, a million pairs of shoes, and a spare pair of shoes, that may mean two million pairs of shoes. All this was taken from the trains, the people were taken to their deaths, was taken from the trains to these enormous warehouses within sight of the gas chambers. Uh, Twenty or thirty enormous warehouses. And they were known to the inmates as, uh, as Canada. And the people who worked there were amazed at what came in. It wasn't great wealth, it wasn't gold and diamonds, but it was simply the possessions of a million people sorted and then sent off to the Reich for German homes, German families. The best things, if it was a gold watch, it went to the SS. If it was an ordinary watch, it simply went to Germany. And when the war was over, so vast was the amount of material that came into these Canada warehouses that when the Russians arrived in the camp in January 1945, they still found hundreds of thousands of artifacts, vast piles of shoes that hadn't yet been sorted and sent to Germany, of spectacles, glasses, watches. It was looting on an incredible and, and horrendous scale. And then the guys who do it then go home to their wives and kiss their children goodnight. I mean, it's yes, and like children and perhaps you know, love their dogs. Many of these people who worked in Auschwitz camp rather prided themselves on the SS, on how, what decent people they were. Uh, and they had to do it and so on. Uh, one of them, who I quote his diary, Dr. Kramer, uh, he, you know, he treats it as if this is, you know, it's, it's a difficult task. He'd far rather perhaps be a doctor in Germany, you know, working in a hospital. But since he has to supervise mass murder, that's what he'll do. It's his uh, duty. And these people felt they were doing their duty and were quite offended. I mean, there was an occasion when uh, Globotsnik, who was the organizing four or five of these murder camps, went to see Hitler. And Hitler said to him, look, the Russians are advancing. We're going to have to dig up all these corpses and burn them so there's no evidence of what we've done. I mean, Hitler himself was sort of scared in a way. What happens if the Russians find great pits of corpses? And Globotsnik was outraged. He said, but my Führer, this is our, our achievement. We should put brass plaques on these pits saying this is what we have achieved. And obviously we'll talk about Jews, but there's a big section in here about what happened to non-Jews, particularly um, gypsies. Right. Um, when you've got a, 
um, a league table of, of uh, which countries lost right. huge numbers of Jews, right. of, of gypsies. Right. Um, a little picture of a little girl or a little boy with uh, the, the gypsy right. symbol on their right. arm. So, um, I mean, the, the numbers aren't the same, but you, in this it's not just about numbers. Is it? I mean, every, everyone is a human being. Yeah. It's, everyone is an individual. Right. The, this, first of all, the listing. I mean, one of the things which makes, I think, a historian's task very difficult is that the Germans kept lists of everything. For the SS, it was important to list the numbers, how many men in each town murdered, how many women, how many children, Jewish, how many gypsies, sometimes an Armenian, specially listed separately, for sort of bureaucratic correctness, accuracy. It's really quite scary. The other side of the coin is that it enabled me, it enables historians in this book, as you say, I, I tried to do it, to say, well, look, you know, the Jews, that was a murder of six million, it was on a horrendous scale. But other people were, were, were chosen. Homosexuals, gays, gypsies, Jehovah's Witnesses. Yes, I'm a guy. You, in a way, you almost couldn't know if no. you were living in German occupied Europe, whether or not you were one of the people who was going to be murdered. And of course we now know, uh, and I try to deal also with, with these things in the book, that the Germans hated the Slavs. They murdered more than three million Russian soldiers after they'd captured them, when they were disarmed, when they were prisoners of war. I mean, it, 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 was, it would have been limitless. I mean, in a way, if Hitler had won the war, then the Russians, the Poles, the Czechs, they would have been made into slaves. Some would have been killed. The idea was that you would only keep enough of the people for slavery that you needed to run whatever it was, your factories or even work in your gardens, and the rest could be murdered. Sir Martin Gilbert died in 2015. He was talking to me then in the year 2000 when his book Never Again was published. Food for Thought. This is the Author Archive.